listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. What a great day to gather around God's Word. So thank you for listening, whether over the air, online, or through an app, or as a podcast. No matter how you tune in, I'm so glad you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds, we're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates and publishes, distributes books that are Bible-based and Christ-centered and Reformation-driven. When you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. And while you're online visiting them, why don't you send me an email? Maybe you have a question or comment about today's show or you just want to say hello. My email is pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Now, every Friday, I'll begin the show by pulling from the old listener email bag, so be sure to tune in for that. And speaking of Fridays when we're live, we're actually live today, which is Tuesday. So uh, call in with your comments or questions at 1-800-730-2727. So, dear listeners, hopefully you're starting to get a sense of how the Christians in Corinth were not only up against their own sinful natures, but also the fallen and corrupt society in which they lived, a society not unlike the one we dwell in today. As we heard last time, St. Paul wrote on the issue of sexual immorality, a topic he undoubtedly had to address before. The Corinthians, well, they didn't have a healthy view of sexuality. God calls Christians to self-control, while the world urges people to give in to every desire. It's no wonder, then, that at least some in Corinth thought it would be best to avoid sexual activity altogether. And that's how this part of the letter begins. We're in chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, and St. Paul is, a, is urging these Christians to embrace a better understanding. So to help us discover and discuss that better understanding, I'm pleased to welcome to the show the Reverend John Shank. He's pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. Pastor Shank, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a, a great pleasure to be on. It's always a lot of fun. We have a, a great text today that that speaks about marriage. It speaks about our relationship together. It, it it speaks about also our relationship with with Christ, and um, and our understanding of our love, our love for Him, and our our love for each other. So we have a a wonderful text to to review with our our um, our, our listeners and, and the whole body of Christ as we reflect uh, on God's gifts to us. Yeah, it really is. And Paul's argument here is sandwiched right between him admonishing them for licentious sexual behavior, and afterwards he's going to talk about how for some to avoid anxiety, you might as well just live however you were when you were called to Christ, and, and that might even include not getting married. But right here in the middle, he does discuss marriage. Paul himself isn't married, but speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, he certainly has a lot to say, and we have a lot to learn. So, Pastor, there's a, so much for us to dig into, so why don't we just begin with a word of prayer, and I'd like to invite you to uh, lead us in that. Yes, yeah, so let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you have given us many gifts, and all good gifts, all good things come from your hands. 
Be with us as we explore your holy word, as it guides us into the good gift of marriage. Help us as husbands and wives to live together in this holy bond. For those who are not married, help us to receive everything from your hand and to live in our single lives, chaste and filled up and supported only by you. Help us, O Lord, to see that you are the one. You are the one who gives us these gifts, and so our trust is in you to sustain us and to keep us until that great day of your son's return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Our text for today is going to cover, oh, what is it, 16 verses. But to get started, let's just read the first five and see what we can discover. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible, and this is chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, quote, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He ends the section on a note of self-control, an issue that's rampant throughout the society of Corinth and leaking into the church. But he begins with, I guess, what is apparently a saying going on. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Why are the Corinthians saying that? That's how Paul begins. Yeah, can can Christians, uh, can we be married uh, with the understanding that marriage and the sexual gifts of marriage, the union of uh, husband and wife into one flesh uh, is the natural reality of what marriage is, huh? um, a, a wonderful gift of marriage. So you can have marriage uh, and, and then um, not uh, be joined together. So now the, the question is, is this for is this something that Christians should even participate in? And we kind of have to ask ourselves, why, you know, why would the Corinthians Christians, why would they even take up such a question? So maybe um, first stepping back and, and asking ourselves, what do we know about the Corinthians? Well, we know that they assume, often assume themselves to be quite wise, um, uh, the learned uh, people who, uh, um, you know, have education. But this education, maybe it's, it is uh, something that uh, is a bit more worldly than it is uh, coming from the Lord. And so they they think of themselves wise. Okay, that's one thing we know of them. Um, they think of themselves quite spiritual. And when we say spiritual, I, I think there is probably a connection um, to our day. And when we say spirit, this is a real spiritual person. Um, maybe in the sense of um, American spirituality, um, people kind of see that person as one who kind of escapes the trappings of the flesh and, and doesn't live a very fleshly existence, maybe is poor, 
Uh, maybe doesn't look towards uh, the things of this world. There are some positive aspects of it, but maybe some negative aspects too that we can explore. Um, and um, because of this thought, and, and maybe exploring a little bit more within the Corinthian con context, that if someone is is spiritual, then the opposite of that would be to be uh, fleshly in the sense of to be material, uh, to, to live a material existence, uh, to see anything that is a material object or a fleshly object, well, that obviously must be bad. And maybe even the beginnings of some Gnostic views, if some of our, our, our listeners have, have kind of studied those, where the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. Um, again, that's, that's not what our Lord has taught us. That is not what our Lord has given to us. He made us body and soul. And he said at the very beginning that this is good. In fact, it is It is very good. Um, and so there is this thought that if, if I'm tempted by material or fleshly things, then I, I've got to escape them. And so a sense of maybe even asceticism, um, kind of running away from temptation, which is good. We, we don't want to give up to temptation. But if we live a life where we're escaping temptation so much that we, um, we, we now neglect those who are in the flesh. What, what about our neighbor? If I want to live only to myself because I'm afraid I might be tempted, then I'm going to live just um, in a, you know, a, a tent in the forest all by myself. Well, what about my neighbor? Have I escaped from a call to love my neighbor. So what about the neighbor who has material or fleshly needs, needs for food, needs for clothing, needs for care, support, help, or then in this case, what about this fleshly needs, the material this life needs um, of my spouse? Uh, so I, I think there's a lot there that kind of led them to ask the question. Um, but even in the question, we might start seeing why, why they have kind of gone astray of what our Lord has called us into. Right. I, I hear you talking about this duality of flesh versus spirit. And I, I, I agree with you that this is an issue that is undoubtedly creeping into this thought. I mean, we have Greek and Roman philosophies being, being heralded as, you know, wise, the wisdom of the day. And you're right. The, the Corinthians, they they seem to really want it to be part of the society as a whole. They wanted to be esteemed. They, they valued things like prestige and honor and wealth. And here, when they say, or when Paul replies to something that they have said, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I, I wonder if they were being on the one hand, sarcastic, you know, well, you put so many limitations on what we can do. We might as well just not do that at all. <laughs> uh, or, or if they were just asking the question, you know, are you saying that we have to, you know, withhold sex altogether? Because Paul is going to frequently talk about how he thinks it'd be better if they were all just single like him. But in verse 2, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, and brother, you know that word there is porneia. It's, it's a generic word for all the things that would have been considered illicit sexual behavior. But considering the Corinthian context, I wonder if this idea of uh, sacred prostitution wouldn't have been um, on the thoughts of Paul, or at least on the Corinthians. Because 
um, it says each man should have his own wife and each woman her husband. And they talk about not withholding from each other except with basically both persons permit and permission. Perhaps the men were engaging in sexual activity with prostitutes or the temple prostitutes. And, and that is the sexual immorality that's at the heart here. And so the encouragement is that you remember the proper role and place for sexual activity. And that, that of course, is within the marriage. That sex isn't bad. It's only bad when it's not in its proper place. Yeah, amen to that. Um, I, definitely, uh, I definitely agree with you that the temptation that we are to be curbed from is to um, to turn away, to turn away from our spouse. Um, instead, we should be turning into, um, turning toward our spouse, um, and even away from ourselves. Uh, as we see in these verses, there's a sense, um, a sense of 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 even the married couple living for themselves, and it, that's <laughs> that's quite quite uh, the opposite of what marriage is intended, God designed to be. God's design for marriage is for that, for each person to look not inwardly, not not uh, gazing at my needs, but to gaze at the needs of my spouse. And and if I'm looking to their needs and they're looking to mine, um, we're going to be just fine. Uh, one because both of us have uh, bent the knee and trusted in the mercy of Christ that Christ is over us both as a married couple, and Christ watches over us. Um, and if Christ has um, watched over us, cared for us, died for us, and given us this good gift of marriage. I, I have, I've been set free, uh, free from my own self. But it, it seems like in these verses that we're bent into what, but what about my, uh, my needs are like, so like, should I have a need of an extra holiness that I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, exercise any kind of sexual gratification. And it's like, well, but what about, what about marriage? And so there's this thought that if I can free myself from, uh, from that, even in marriage, um, that I'm kind of becoming more and more holy. But as you said, and rightfully so, um, then, then temptation comes and the temptation might be being satisfied outside of marriage instead of inside of marriage, which is, um, which is, again, they're trying to make themselves holier. But again, when we try to create ways of, of making ourselves holier, boy, do we, do we fall into all kinds of corruption. One of the things that Paul is doing here that I think people overlook, too, is that he is raising the status of women and their ability to have a, an active role in their marriages. So in the in the over, overarching context of this area, women were considered um, – well, let's just be honest. Sometimes and they were considered basically not much more than property. And uh, in marriages, the husband would be very dominant over his wife. And in the Christian view, that's not the case, right? Right? We're made male and female from the very beginning. You know, we're, we are neither male nor female when it comes to our, our relationship with Christ. We have equality there. And so I think it's fascinating, and Paul, the Holy Spirit, of course, speaking through Paul, but Paul himself, who gets beat up a lot for being, you know, uh, 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 you know patriarchal and anti-woman for some reason, he, in this very passage, lifts up women's ability 
to um, to uh, have an active role in their in their marriage when it comes to sexual relations. And he's going to talk about that later, and we're going to see more of that in this section. But it begins here because I, I verse verse four, he says, "For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does." Could you imagine if that's all he had said? <laughs> but then he makes it very clear. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement. So the loving husband does not take advantage of his wife. You know, in Ephesians, he, talk, he compares the husband being the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, which necessarily means husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. That is, he gave himself up for her. So this is painting a picture of a Christian marriage that is one based on uh, mutual companionship, uh, while there certainly are leadership roles and headship roles, there isn't this idea of dominating one or the other. Uh, do you see it that way? Yeah. I, yeah. Um, so there's a few different things that come up with this with this section. Um, one is some rabbinic traditions that allowed for the man to dictate, uh, even without the consent of his wife. And there's all different periods of time. Some say a week, some say two weeks, some say, you know, a whole month. Uh, even if his wife uh, doesn't agree that they should be um, acting, uh, you know, acting in this self-controlled way away, away from each other. Um, here, Paul removes that kind of um, worldly, human, rabbinic, tradition and says, no, uh, both have to come together uh, together in, in agreement. And he stipulates some, uh, some purposes. Um, but it does seem it does seem interesting. Um, I think I think maybe sadly, um, maybe even Christian men uh, maybe even try to use this word against their wives. Uh, I think that's uh, that'd be that'd be a very sad state. Um, because the law, and there's some law in here, right? That you're not your own. Um, again, we can see the the gospel in that that you've been purchased with a price. Uh, that that there is gospel in it, but there is also law when we when we try to live um, wholly separate. I am my own uh, being. Um, I am not subject to anyone. Uh, that there is law there to tell you that you're not your own. Um, but um, so, sadly, I, I think maybe husbands might try to use this word against their wives to to dominate over them and and say well here here is the law uh you you must be more submissive to me in a sexual way um, but that's really again it's really sad when we want to use uh god's word as a weapon against each other god's weapon god's word is never to be weaponized against each other um so we have to review again what what the law is and the the uses of the law right um, the the second use of the law, the theological use, the churchly use, is as a mirror. And, and in a mirror, we don't we're not looking at someone else. We are looking primarily at ourselves. And so this law that is used here, that you are not your own, you you belong to another, is first to be viewed uh, against myself. That I'm supposed to use it as a, a mirror, not a microscope, right? To examine myself, not a microscope. To examine how faithful is my wife being? Um, well, first, let me look at myself. And, and have I looked to her needs? Have I thought about what 
she needs. Um, it starts off uh, in verse three against the husband, right? Um, the husband should uh, give to his wife the conjugal rights. And maybe, uh, maybe that should sound surprising, but it uh, maybe in my ministry, I, I could be honest to, to say that there are times where men aren't being faithful to their wives, not, not just because they've been uh, unfaithful to someone else, maybe even say, "Why well, I, I haven't been unfa- I haven't been unfaithful." Um, what what might they say that I would say is being unfaithful? I I just don't want any more children. Well, mm. what, what are we doing here, right? I think there is a modern application to this, uh, where men might keep themselves from their wives because they've determined individually, uh, unilaterally, that this belongs only to them and they're. They're not submitting to the their wives. They're not seeking counsel together. Um, so I think there is a word even here as husbands that we need to look at and say, oh, I, I need to use this word as a mirror. Am I being faithful to the needs or the desires or the wants of my wife? That, ex- you know, I like that viewpoint and that application that it fills in a little bit because uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're 100 percent right. And it fills in for me some of Paul's language in verse 5. The ESV translates it, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. And that's certainly what the intention is. But the actual Greek word there really refers to defrauding. Do not defraud one another. And I think that's significant, or that is significant, especially in light of what you're saying. You know, to, to say I'm going to withhold A the uh, the needs of my wife, right? Because there are non-childbearing needs that must also be considered when we talk about this topic, but also to say I'm going to prevent my wife from enjoying the literal fruits of what God has gifted her. Yeah, that's that's even if it's not intended as a weapon, it's still misusing the grace and gifts of God. Absolutely, yeah, and um, yeah, that defrauding is is used, I think, just the chapter or so before about lawsuits and things against each other. We don't defraud each other. Um, so seek each other out, seek uh, a different kind of judgment from, from within the church. So, yeah, the, this we have, um, again, uh, the thought of claiming our own rights is kind of foreign to what we should be about as Christians. But I should look to what is the right of my wife, not what is my wife, my rights in marriage, although I have them, but um, I should be looking if I'm if I'm submitting to the 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 rightful uh, needs and desires of my my spouse, then um, then they for me. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely see this sadly in our lives where we we're kind of making where husbands and wives make unilateral decisions. Um, and and the other spouse is kind of left to kind of hold in a bag, wondering, wait, what about me? I, I thought we were in this together, and and that 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 leads to all sorts of struggle, where the marriage and the marriage bed is supposed to be about uh, the needs of the spouse. And, and I, I think there are biblical examples of the of the one that I was listing out, even about children, and um, and we should not deprive our our wives of of this just because we have made dis- decisions all on our own. Yes, 
you know, both the bringing children into the world and the aspect of helping the other create or build this hedge against temptation, Paul seems to be very uh, focused on this, especially for the Corinthians, that you, if you're surrounded by all these temptations and Satan is using them to tempt you, um, he, he gives the blame to Satan plenty, but he also gives the blame to them because of your lack of self-control. So even when you may, perhaps by agreement for a limited time, and the example is devoting themselves to prayer, then he says, but don't let that be a permanent thing. As someone who counsels premarital couples as well as postmarital couples, you know, the role of sexual activity within a marriage is beyond that of just producing children. It's also about protecting, you know, one from from their own lack of self-control. So when there is abstinence within a marriage, though, I don't know if it's expressly only for prayer, but certainly he gives that as an example. Um, what would that look like? You know, why would there be abstinence required for a time of prayer? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, I think whatever examples we would come up with, um, the reality that you should be praying in this time is evident, right? So maybe um, there is a, um, I don't know, I I hate to come up with examples because then it's like I'm dictating what people should do. Uh, I'm not yeah, dictating sure. what you should do in your marriage. Um, but maybe, um, maybe we're talking about uh, there's a time right after uh, a childbirth, right? And uh, even in that time, um, even if it's the the uh, first thought, well, my first thought wasn't because of prayer. It was because of um, the needs of my body and recovery and all these things. Um, well, we should be praying in this time <laughs> because temptation is ripe, right? Um, or maybe there is a sense of a time of war and the men are going off to battle, right? Or whatever it is. Well, you should be praying during this time, even though, as you said, maybe we come up with any number of examples, uh, but where maybe even our first thought, well, wasn't, it wasn't expressly for prayer. Well, you should be praying. <laughs> you should be praying. Um, and prayer should cover this time, uh, the time where you're, you're not being able to be physically together. Maybe there are, maybe that's the reason why you can't be together because you can't be physically together. So you should be praying, praying for each other, um, praying against temptation. Um, our Lord's prayer is very clear about these things. Paul is certainly not dictating, at least I don't see so that one must engage in sexual activity within the marriage. If for some reason the couple decides that's not a practice for them, perhaps because of age, health, or any number of reasons, that's not a, that's not a command that he's burdening people's hearts with, is he? Um, no, but um, I would, I would, it seems like there's great caution, right? Um, he's not burdening, saying, well, you know, uh, we've had this uh, medical condition, we're of this age, you know, whatever it is, a season in life where it's just not possible. Therefore, are we not, we're not uh, married anymore? You know, he's, there's new, there's, he's not introducing new questions here. But he is, um, he's, in my opinion, he's being even more clear that that's more an exception, not the rule. The rule of marriage is for us to be together. 
Um, and this is a beautiful gift. There's many reasons for it. Um, but um, that we would, that our um, mutual agreement of kind of depriving or holding back, uh, abstaining at a certain time, th this is, it seems clear to me this is, should be limited in scope. And we shouldn't overestimate. We shouldn't overestimate my ability to withstand in front of temptation where it's like, well, uh, we're going to abstain for a really long time and whatever that might be for you. Right. Um, this is abnormally longer than what is normal for our marriage. Right. Um, don't get too puffed up. <laughs> that would be my pastoral warning to everyone. Right. Don't mm -hmm. get too puffed up um, because whenever we're very conceited, that that's where we're ripe to fall. Um, instead, um, love your wife, love your husband, um, see to their needs, um, look towards each other. And, uh, of course, when there is special, there's special, special, um, issues in your marriage, well, we're trusting that as, as there's new times for crosses, that the Lord will carry us through, uh, we'll bear that cross together. Um, but we're going to carry it in the Lord. Well, brother, we're up against a break, so let's take just a few minutes to pause and listen to these messages. Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few moments when we return, Pastor Shank and I will continue our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend John Shank, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. Pastor Shank, before the break, we heard as St. Paul was urging married people not to withhold sexual activity from one another, except for perhaps a short time to devote themselves to prayer. But because of their lack of self-control, he wanted to encourage them to continue to come together. And and as you said, perhaps this is even more the expectation. He's not going to burden their conscience, but he definitely is saying this is an important gift to you in your marriage to protect you from sexual uh, immorality. But in this next section, which we're going to read now, Paul continues to talk about this idea of self-control, but it looks like he's saying, really, I wish everybody weren't married. So within the confines of marriage, he thinks that they need to have sexual activity to protect from lack of self-control. But his overarching preference is that no one is married. It's a little bit hard to understand. Hopefully we'll be able to dissect it. We're gonna, I'm going to read, though, verses 6 
through the through the end. I think we'll read through the end and we'll get those on the table to talk about. Chapter seven, verse six. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any unbeliever, pardon me, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. Well, we got through that text just barely. Sorry for the mistakes. But with verse 6, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, he wishes everybody was like him. What do you think, brother? All right. So it seems seems like we had a, a, have a little bit of a reversal of maybe what, um, if Paul was writing to, writing to my, I'll, I'll put it this way, to my congregation, it seems like everything's a bit reversed, right? Where um, the question is, can you be a Christian and be married? Where that's kind of, is this, is this okay? Um, where they answer, he has to answer them and say, yeah, yeah, you can. And it seems now it's like um, where we would maybe wonder as a Christian, how can you not, can you not be married? Um, which again, I, I, either, either question is not really right because the Christian is not made a Christian by marriage, nor is a Christian made a Christian by their lack of marriage. Uh, a Christian is made a Christian because of the sacrifice, the redeeming work of Christ. So whatever state I am in, um, I am one who has been purchased. I've been redeemed by Christ. And so Paul writes to them and tells them that he wishes he it would be his desire. And again, he kind of goes through this where he speaks of his own mind and then he gives a command of the Lord where it's really clear that this is what the Lord's word says, not not himself, but the Lord. And he kind of goes back and forth. So in this case, he himself is saying this. I wish this. He'd be like him. So why would he wish that everyone could remain single uh, maybe in the Corinthian congregation? Uh, um, congregation and, and context, well, because they would they wouldn't lack um, devotion, devotion to the Lord. They wouldn't be divided in in marriage. You know, um, even my my wife and I have both talked about this, and at different times where, you know, uh, during my pastoral work, as you know, I, I it's I we struggle we struggle where it's like okay, yeah, you need to be there, and I I need to also be here in the family. Where what where how could I how could we divide this out? How can we make this 
how can we make this work? If you weren't married, there wouldn't be a sense of trying to make everything work. Uh, you can uh, devote yourself to the work of the ministry. Here now we have to think about the needs of our family, the needs of my wife, and the needs of our congregation. It gets a little bit more more confusing. So I think that is the the number one, and and also um, maybe with that one, maybe that's one A, or maybe that's one uh, could be argued. But the 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 greater sense of of uh, because they're self controlled, and right now there's this there's a struggle within them, um, and and. And this is really isn't an issue for Paul, it doesn't seem like. Um, and so he is self-controlled in this state, and he wishes everyone would have this gift that he had where he doesn't, um, he doesn't burn with desire. So I, I think that's also a, um, a desire for him, for, for them. Yeah, Paul is famous for his singleness, the fact that he was unmarried, and that freed him up to be able to go out without consideration, really even of himself or a family to have to worry about. And he could do the will of God and endure the punishments and all the tribulations and trials that he faced. But you're right. It appears that he had a gift of celibacy, and it's that gift that he is hoping that they have, not so much that he thinks, well, everybody should just stay unmarried or that being single is the best and married is only a you know a, a consideration if you can't control yourself yeah, a concession but, yeah yeah a concession that's the word i was looking for but rather that he wishes they had you know from his own perspective this ability to not worry about this particular temptation to sin um i'm sure he has and he of course he has plenty of other temptations in other departments but he feels very blessed and considers this part a gift um and he we know he considers it a gift because he says in verse 7 but each has his own gift from God, explaining that while that's his, other people may have something else. And we know that marriage is blessed by God, so this isn't an issue of Paul disagreeing with our Lord who blessed marriage uh, both in Eden and with his first miracle at Cana, etc. But, you know, in the Corinthian context, if they're struggling with everything from the hypersexualized culture to not knowing how to treat one another as husband and wife, to single people being tempted outside of marriage. Yeah, it makes sense that Paul would just say, honestly, I wish you guys were all had the same <laughs> gift I do, and then you wouldn't have to worry about it, and I wouldn't be having to address this, but I think all the time. I think this is a constant issue that he has to address. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, spot on, right? Uh, if if no one had this desire, then um, then we'd be good. Um, but again, like you said, this is Paul talking. So he's not, um, he's not setting up, you know, a multi-tiered system. And he's not saying, well, this is from the Lord. Because the Lord, as you said, the Lord has given the gift of marriage. Um, Jesus himself speaks of the blessings of marriage. It was there at the wedding at Cana where he does his first miracle. So, no, Jesus is not uh, anti-marriage, nor, nor is Paul. But in this context uh, for, you know, of, of Corinth, uh, of this letter to the, the Corinthians, um, we definitely get to see that they are struggling so mightily. He's like, I wish we just didn't even have to deal with this. Right. Um, and uh, it kind of comes up in different ways. And anyone who has struggled with any sin, but in particular a pervasive sexual sin that they that they you know are seeking to be free of, 
I think they could agree with Paul. I just wish I didn't have these temptations to sin. And this introduces to us an important distinction between the temptations that people have to sin and those who give into those temptations willfully and gleefully and celebrate them. So when we look across our church, whether they be heterosexual sins or homosexual sins or non-sexual sins, there's all types of sin. There's a big difference between those who face them and struggle with them and desire to live as God wants them to live, seeks repentance and strength to live out God's will, and those who say, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I'll, if it doesn't work out, I'll just get divorced. Or, oh, well, God made me this way, so I'm just going to give in to whatever temptation I have. And that certainly Paul would be against, as as our Lord is. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he would be against it because... You know that, you know. I think I think you're pointing to a, a greater reality. Um, you know, often I think the accusation against the church or pastors or teachers or whatever is that all we care about is sexual relationships and we're so prudish. But that's really not the thing. Um, it kind of just comes up in these uh, often, but not exclusively. Often in these areas of great passion and great desire. Um, because they are amazingly strong and it's an area of great, uh, weakness and, and great, uh, falling. You know, we can fall greatly when we give into our desires and passions that are against his word. Um, but there's a greater temptation there where as Christians raised in the word where we know this is really clear. And if it's not clear, show me where, show me where I'm wrong. <laughs> show me where the church has been wrong over the years, not by your feelings. Not by your thoughts, not by your desires, but by the word. Show us where the word is showing something else um, where you can correct us all, right? Have a reformation uh, of, of sorts. But um, often it's it's not that. You know, when those when I when I put that before a, a couple or a family or individual and say, okay, well, you tell me. I'm I'm submitting to your correction. Where 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 have we misinterpreted God's word? They'll quickly say, well, I don't, I don't care what God's word has to say. And that's mm -hmm. where we get to see the greatest, um, the greatest hardship, the great, uh, great sin, the great temptation, the great struggle there where every pastor is, you know, and every Christian kind of shudders at that statement, right? I don't care what God's word has to say, right? Then, the, then it shows us, no, this really isn't about, uh, just a sexual sin or, or this temptation. It's about looking at God and say, I don't care. I don't care what you say. And therefore, I don't really care about you. That's the road we're on. And, and we really want people to repent, which is to just hop off that road as, as quickly as that's been identified. Whoa, I'm walking down a road where I'm about to say, I don't care what God has to say. I don't, God, I don't care about you. Oh boy. We need to, we need to turn around as quickly as we can. Um, and, and love each other and, and care for each other and bring, bring that word to each other. Um, because, um, that's the, the that's the greater temptation just to, f to fully, uh, uh, apostate to, to say, I don't, I don't care about you anymore, God. He says in verses 10 and 11, something I think is very difficult for us to uh, reconcile with our current context, especially in regards to the pervasiveness that is divorce in our country and around the world. In verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge. And he emphasizes that this isn't just his opinion. This is the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. 
and the husband should not divorce his wife. And in this passage, he's he's paraphrasing Jesus. Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. These are the words of Jesus. That particular is from Mark uh, 10, chapter 7. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 7, pardon me. So the question here is, we know lots of people, both within the pews and outside the pews, that have been divorced and remarried. How do we apply this today? It seems pretty clear. Well, first, first, let's just understand why this is even an issue here in Corinth, right? I think we have to understand the context, and then we can apply it more more broadly. I think the context is pointing us to the sense of conversion, because that, that that's coming up here in the next few verses, right? So, uh, helpful to see why why would a woman maybe think she maybe even must separate from her hu- husband, or why does a husband think he must uh, separate from his wife? Well, um, see, when they are living a, an unbelieving life and, and everything, and now they become a Christian, they, they maybe the temptation is think, well, this marriage obviously can't stand because I'm married to someone who is an unbeliever. Therefore, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the the right. They think maybe even I'm gonna do the right thing and leave this person because uh, they're an unbeliever. And, and Paul has to quickly. Um, correct that with the word of God. But again, I think this word then has a greater application, of course, right? That it, it applies to, to us, um, in a greater way. It applied to them in that context because it's, it's, it's a, it's a greater truth <laughs> that, that marriage was designed, uh, not to be broken. Uh, therefore, let's, let's not do that. Let's, um, and what's the, the greater application then? Well, the application is if we believe that that God has reconciled me. If he has paid for my sin, he has, if he's returned me to a right state with Jesus, um, as great as my sins are, he, he's, he's actually done it. Then when I turn to my spouse and say, we can't be reconciled, is that a, is that a statement of faith or is that a statement of unbelief that this sin, your sin is too great to be forgiven? And I think that's the greater struggle. This is a faith struggle. Um, okay. And then you said, well, what about someone who is divorced and remarried and, and whatnot? Well, there's a different word, right? We would examine that person. We talk to that and I examine in the sense of, I'm going to put you under the microscope or whatever. I'm going to listen to that person. That's a better way of saying it. I'm going to listen to that person. We're going to hear them out because they might be truly repentant. Yes, this is not what God, I, I've talked to many of people where it's like, no, God didn't want my marriage to, to, to crumble, fall apart. There's a long history. There's all these different things. And yet here I am repenting of what has happened to my marriage. And I, I'm married to someone else, pastor. What am I to do? Am I supposed to get another divorce and yeah, have my other spouse, my first husband get a divorce? Like, what am I supposed to and it's like, no, 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 we can't, we, we can't now seek more and more divorces to rect. We, we are going to uh, now turn all of our sins to the one who carried them all to Christ and live, live in faithfulness to the Lord as I now live with the husband that I now have or the wife that I have, right? I'm going to trust in the Lord. Um, so yeah, more divorces aren't going to rectify uh, the sinfulness. The only answer for our sins is Jesus. So no, we can't fix our sins, can we? 
but we key can. Key to what you're saying. Well, key to what you're saying mm-hmm. is the acknowledgement that it is a sin. And I've met right. few people who've experienced divorce who wouldn't say, regardless of how negative the circumstances were of their marriage, even when they are abusive, none of them would have said that this clearly was you know, not a sin that, you know, they see the sin in it. They see how it affects their families. They see how it affects their children if they have them. And so it's it's not as though someone should submit to being beaten. Don't misunderstand me. But even in those cases where divorce is clearly the lesser of the two evils, they still recognize that this is not how God designed it. This is not what God wants from marriage. Right. And, yeah. you know, and the, the, the only times but, that I've had people come and, and, um, or <laughs> most of the time, and then in that case, it's hard. I have to try to find them, but, um, want to talk about the struggles of their marriage or now that I found out that they have left their spouse. Um, yeah, though, there are, there are a few times where they're like, no, pastor, this isn't sinful. And, you know, those are old rules and uh, I'm not pair, those kind of things. It's more like what's going to come up here shortly about the un, they, they've kind of become the unbeliever, right? Where they no longer even care about God's word. So, um, so there's kind of a separate, a separate word to bring in those those instances. But yeah, like you, I've, I've most of the time, even in the, in the situations where it's like, yes, um, no, God didn't design marriage to be broken, but our sins, <laughs> he didn't design our world for our sins either. And he didn't design it for death. And yet, and yet we have brought death into the world and we can bring death into our marriages too. Um, uh, and so the only thing that we can turn to then is the one who brings, brings life. Uh, we turn to the author of life. In Greco-Roman society, you know, divorce was permitted. Women could even leave their husbands. In Jewish tradition, that wasn't the case. Uh, and Jesus did not permit divorce except in cases of marital unfaithfulness. So a lot of times people will look at, you know, what, how do we define marital unfaithfulness? And, you know, unfaithfulness is certainly connected to not providing for your spouse, especially when it comes to if you're being abusive or if you are an unbeliever, as as Paul talks about next or has become an unbeliever. Um, let's get into those verses. Um, everything's still on the table, of course, but he says to the rest, I say, but then he makes a distinction. I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she wants to live with him, she shouldn't leave him. Um and if any woman has a husband who is a, an unbeliever, et cetera, et cetera. So the goal here, it seems, is that by staying in the marriage, there may be the added benefit of your faithfulness bringing them to Christ. But then, of course, there's this really obtuse language about how the husband is made holy because of his wife and the wife is made holy because of her husband. That is, the unbelievers are for the sake of the children. Take us through that, Pastor. What's Paul getting at? Yeah, it's very, it's, um, it, it can be a bit confusing, but so let's, um, let's talk about, uh, obviously, I, I think the children is an easier one, um, because the children then can be raised in the knowledge, uh, of Christ, uh, prayerfully, uh, be baptized and be, be raised as, uh, as ones who are believers. If you would, uh, to leave, I, if the unbeliever is left with the the children, um, uh, I, I I doubt that they're going to start. Well, your mom or your dad is a believer. Let me raise you in that 
that context, even though I don't believe any of it, I, you know, it, it's probably not going to be the case, right? Um, or uh, definitely not going to be the case. They're not going to start doing things outwardly. So, um, so here, I think the children are easier. The, the other that the marriage, it seems like he's even saying the marriage is made holy um, by the, the believing of the spouse. So what, what, how are things made holy? Well, by, by the word of God and by prayer. Um, so we sanctify the holy day by word and prayer. Um, we're sanctifying our, our wedding day um, by prayer and by scripture. Um, God's blessing there is upon it. Um, so here I think we have that constant reality that your marriage is sanctified, is made holy, because you as a believer are going to bring God's word. You're going to bring God's grace. You're going to bring his promise within that. You're going to be praying for your spouse. You're going to be lifting them up. You're going to even be submitting to them um, as husbands and wife, uh, submit to the needs of the other um, in, in amazing ways, which demonstrates uh, the love, um, the sacrificial love that Christ had for his bride, the church, the honor that the church has for her husband, Christ. And in that way, we are demonstrating something and prayerfully, prayerfully, the Holy Spirit will be at, at work in the, in the heart of my spouse. And they too will come to want to, um, be in, in communion with such a God who could act in such love towards us. Yeah, I think I think that is exactly what we're talking about here. This reality that you never know the influence you have on others and to you know if you have the freedom to leave this person as Paul it seems to be indicating here, you know, if, but you also have the freedom to stick it out, to set apart, you know, holy meaning set apart, sanctify um that relationship how many have come to faith later through their wives or their mothers? And we think about Augustine we, through the relationships that they have with other people. Well, brother, we've come to the end of this program, and there's still plenty that we could talk about. But I'm really grateful to you. I'm thankful that you came on the show. Um, I hope to hear you next uh, next month. I think we're going to talk again. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. We'll hear hear more about our, our Christ who would never abandon us. That's the overall message we have from this text, that Jesus, uh, our faithful husband, will never leave you nor forsake you. And so our marriages should reflect uh, that truth in, in our lives. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend John Shank, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. And thank you, too, listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we continue in 1 Corinthians with the second half of Chapter 7. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word. <laughs>